0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morter. President Obama announced a new moonshot in his final State of the Union address last month. But it wasn't to land on some other planet. It was to cure a disease that has ruined lives on this one, cancer.
1: For the loved ones we've all lost, for the families that we can still save, let's make America the country that cures cancer once and for all. What do you think, huh? let's make it happen.
0: He put Vice President Joe Biden in charge of the effort and announced a $1 billion investment to launch the mission. It got us thinking about what work is going on in Colorado in this regard. And so we've invited some of the state's top cancer researchers onto the program. Dr. Dan Theodorescu leads the University of Colorado Cancer Center in Aurora. And Marty Jacobson is research director at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. you. So this is not the first time a U.S. president has announced a nationwide initiative to cure cancer. President Richard Nixon made a similar proclamation in 1971, and progress has certainly been made, but there is no cure yet for cancer. Dan, what makes curing cancer so complex?
1: Well, cancer uh, is not really one disease. It's multiple diseases, and what we've learned over the past 30 to 40 years Uh, is that the genetics uh, are really major determinants of the biology of the cancer. So the genetics of the cancer, not necessarily of the individual who has it. Exactly. Although the individual's genetics also play a great role in how they combat and potentially respond to the cancer and to treatments. So we have a challenge, really, uh, to dissect this disease into multiple forms of the disease and address each individually based on its genetic fingerprint, if you will.
0: And so when you say we're going to cure cancer or we're going to try to cure cancer, what you're really saying, Marty, is we're going to cure
2: a whole host of diseases. We're going to cure many cancers. Yes. That's what the true goal is. Yes. I mean, cancer, there's over 200 different types and... Um, within each type, there are subtypes. And so, as Dan said, it's a it's a huge genetic mess to try to say we're going to do one thing. And so when you heard
0: the president say, let's be the country that cures cancer, was that met with exuberance on your part, a little bit of a sigh and an eye roll? Dan, what was your reaction?
1: Uh, exuberance, if you're going to give me those two multiple choice uh, <laughs> okay. uh, f- answers. Uh, and that's because Uh, America has invested an enormous amount in cancer research and scientific investigation and research over the past 30 to 40 years, and now we're poised really to make tremendous advances, and uh, the extra funding is going to really help us do that.
2: Marty, what was your reaction? Optimism, I would say, because um, we've, we've invested a lot of money already. As Dan said, we are poised to do more and in a position to do uh, good work, and we've got numbers of new new drugs and new potential can't drug candidates. Um, so, uh, in general, optimism.
0: Now, though there are many different types of cancer, Doctor Theodore Rescue, can we at least say that cancer has one thing in common? It's cells that have gone crazy. It's cells that are out of whack. Is that is that the combining force here?
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. Uh, cancer, by definition, is cells that no longer respond to normal uh, regulatory signals to stop growing. They don't like to see the stop sign and uh, therefore grow. And uh, also a very fundamental characteristic of cancer is that it spreads and uh, called metastasis. And that's, those are the two characteristics that really make cancer a problem. Cancer is like a petulant child that has stopped listening to its parents. <laughs> that's a very nice way of putting it, yes are we cu-
0: closer to curing some cancers than others i mean are there cancers that are more vexing than others in terms of that path to a cure
1: you know i think that's that's definitely the case uh and uh, i think one one thing i like to mention is that uh the word cure uh can be interpreted in different ways mm. uh and i think If you think of cancer as a disease that can be put into a situation where it doesn't bother the individual that harbors the disease, um, that's somewhat equivalent to, if you will, a functional cure. So living with cancer without being affected by the cancer, I would consider that a victory and uh, basically converting a disease that would normally kill you to something that's chronic and doesn't bother you.
0: That is to say converting maybe a malevolent tumor to a benign one?
1: Um, You know, benign would be, uh, you know, a matter of debate whether you call it that. But I think uh, I like to think of it as a disease that no longer impacts your quality of life and your quantity of life. And whether you harbor it or not, um, it doesn't really matter then. Fascinating.
0: Well, Marty, I'd like to set up some historical context for cancer research on the Western Slope. Okay. So you direct the nonprofit Sakamano Research Institute at St. Mary's there. It is named after Dr. Gino Sakamono, and you say that he was a pioneer in
2: the field of cancer research here in Colorado. What's that story, just briefly? Well, Dr. Sacamano, uh set up the first pathology practice between Denver and Salt Lake City. In Grand Junction, and um, in part of his his early uh, practice, he he observed that uranium miners had a higher incidence of lung cancer than the normal population. And um, in in the he wanted to study this because he, he was an MD PhD. His first love was research, and um, so he began to investigate why that might be. And he came upon a technology called sputum cytology, which he uh, pioneered. And used to uh, diagnose lung cancer early, so at the time chest x-rays were the prime method for diagnosing lung cancer radiographically um, and he identified within the sputum of individuals um, lung cancer cells that was an early indication for lung cancer in those individuals in some cases five years before they actually came down with a uh, with a disease that they could see. So instead of just taking a picture that
0: may or may not have given you the full picture, right. he developed a test of body fluids, essentially, right. that could identify cancer. Yes. And has that led to other breakthroughs?
2: Well, in the early days, there were a number of people that had, that began to practice sputum cytology. More recently, um, there have been much better methodologies for um, early identification of lung cancer, for example. So uh, low dose CT is one. We currently are able to do uh, low dose CT, scre- CT screening for scan. lung cancer. A cancer scan. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Which which raises the question: if
0: a c- cure for cancer may lie more in early detection
2: of it. Yes. And being able to be aggressive at the front end. Do you think that's the case? I think in I think Dr. Cideresco would probably agree that earlier detection usually comes with a better outcome. Yes.
0: And so all of that work happened because of the history of uranium mining in Colorado. Yes. And uh, Marty, you were making reference earlier to the fact that you are optimistic about this mission of curing cancer because there are new and exciting drugs coming online. Correct. What are some of the ones you would point to and that
2: you're most excited about? Well, probably the more recent ones are the checkpoint inhibitors, the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, And what do those do? Do Say that in layman's terms? Okay. So they modulate the immune system, allowing it to react against the tumor cells. So you teach the body in a way to fight the cancer. In some ways. You unmask or you mask the ability of the tumor cell to present itself as a normal cell. Mm. And then the immune system knows to attack it. Yes. How
0: important is the immune system, Dr. Theodorescu, Rescue, in all of this?
1: Well, I think we've uh, discovered in the past uh, 20 years that, in fact, it is. And uh, it took a lot of years of fundamental research. And I think I'd like to give a plug here to fundamental science uh, that has led to a lot of this stuff uh, that is now making a difference to patients in the clinic. We're really um, creating new therapies based on very basic work, in science uh, that uh, is really the foundation of these advances that now are benefiting patients. So I think it's very important, and it's going to help a um, definite subgroup of patients. It may not help everybody, but we're going to make a significant advance here uh, based on immunotherapy and cancer.
0: And so very basic
1: science, you
0: say, is leading to very sophisticated breakthroughs. Is, Is there an example of that basic science?
1: Well, I think the the same way we understood and are able to treat more effectively HIV um, by understanding the fundamental biology of viruses, uh, we're understanding really how to treat patients with cancer by altering the immune system, and that only is possible by really understanding how the immune system works at the very fundamental level. So basically, curiosity-driven research, hmm. as opposed to targeted necessarily at a disease, was very valuable here for many, in many cases.
0: Letting scientists explore without necessarily having a specific goal in mind.
1: Exactly. Curiosity-based uh, research is really has proven repeatedly valuable.
0: And Marty, back to this notion of drugs that interact with the immune system or allow the immune system to do its job. There are three clinical trials, I understand, going on at St. Mary's
2: in this regard. Yes, we've had uh, uh, all three of the... Um, uh, Immune modulated inhibitors uh, in clinical trials at St. Mary's. Um, one of them on the fast track process for the FDA. And so these are
0: obviously human trials. Yes. And could they lead then to widespread drugs, the availability? Well, it's
2: of the it, we're we're involved in clinical trials, which are uh, in, usually in our in our case uh, phase three. Uh, phase two or phase three uh, clinical trials, which uh, are evaluating a drug in a disease state to see if it has a a positive effect. And any early signs? Oh, yeah. A couple of the drugs have had some uh, very good results for some of our patients. Um, In what kinds of cancer? uh, Lung cancer. And um, we've had some in breast cancer, And, uh, but primarily in lung cancer. And is lung cancer a particularly aggressive form of cancer in general? Yes, it is. It's usually diagnosed late in the disease state. um, And the the long-term outcomes are not that great. I understand that the, the field really has come a
0: long way since the 1970s when, you know, researchers grew cells in a dish and looked under a microscope. And, and back to this idea, Dr. Theodorescu, of, of genes. If there are, I don't know, 10 different types of cancer, do they have 10 different DNA structures, 10 different genetic maps that you've got to figure out?
1: Well, yeah, I think uh, I think there's an element of that, and uh, I think what we're understanding more and more is that cancers, although historically have been uh, grouped by the disease uh, by the organ site they come from, such as lung cancer, bladder cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, we now understand more and more that in fact a cancer with a specific mutation, regardless of the tissue of origin, that arose may actually respond to a similar therapy. So, oh, fascinating. So we have
0: historically seen things as oh, it's this type of cancer because it's attacking say the liver or it's attacking the lungs. But even though they may be in separate organs, there there may be similarities.
1: I think that's right. And those similarities have been really uncovered and enlightened by the genomic revolution to really that characterize these uh, genetic changes in cancers in therefore discovering their similarities.
0: Why don't we take a quick break and then pick up this conversation with some of Colorado's top cancer researchers. We are hearing from Dr. Dan Theodore-Rescue, who directs CU's Cancer Center, and Marty Jacobson, who's at St. Mary's in Grand Junction. Uh, they join us after the president called for America to cure cancer. It was in his State of the Union address last month. So back in a moment on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to our conversation with some of Colorado's top cancer research. They're speaking with us in light of the president's call to action for America to be the country that cures cancer. And I'd like to introduce to you a third voice, Professor Tintin Tsu. She teaches biology at CU Boulder. She also founded a startup called Suvica, where she and her colleagues are in the very early stages of developing a new cancer drug. Welcome to the program
3: i uh, glad to be here. Thank you.
0: So you launched Suvica based on your work at CU Boulder. Uh, the National Cancer Institute, which is a federal agency, re- recently awarded Suvica $1.5 million in a contract for research into head and neck cancer treatments. Um, take me back to the moment you realized that you might be onto something big.
3: Well, it goes uh, even before uh, the founding of Suvica. So I'm a basic researcher what uh, Dan was referring to as curiosity-based um, work, and that's what we do. And um, actually, uh, my lab at, in Boulder studies uh, fruit flies, drosophila, because they're highly resistant to radiation. And so we were studying what radiation does to cells in the fruit fly and how they grow back So regeneration after damage by radiation. And um, we're learning quite a bit about how they do that, the genes that are needed, the proteins that are needed, and so on. And then I happened to meet a radiation oncologist because we were serving on the board for uh, the Cancer League of Colorado. And I was telling him about my results, and he was telling me about his experience treating patients with radiation. And we realized that there were a lot of parallels. So that's how it started.
0: The notion that humans may be able to draw from fruit flies' resilience... When it comes to recovering from radiation treatments?
3: That's correct. And when we compare nodes, it's not just that the, the phenomenon is similar, but also that the genes and proteins that the human tumors use to come back from radiation treatment. So lowering the success of radiation therapy are similar in fly also.
0: Got it. So... It is fundamentally research that looks at why some tumors are resistant to radiation or bounce back after radiation. That's correct. Wow. And as we said, this research uh, is uh, specifically into head and neck cancer. Right. Why those cancers, and are, are they particularly aggressive?
3: Well, we were starting, in this particular case, we were starting with radiation and looking for ways to prevent tumors from coming back. So we were then looking at tumors where radiation is used as a primary um, mode of therapy and, that and head and to neck be ha- these kinds. right and there's a second reason too. It's a so-called head and neck cancer is very few in terms of number of cases, so it often doesn't attract the interest of drug companies, and that's also the reason that we wanted to focus on that and help that patient population.
0: And so you are testing a drug now I think on rodents, correct?
3: That's correct. In the um the the in mice, uh the mice the mouse model of so-called xenografts, that's where we grow we take human head and neck cancer cells and grow them into little tumors in mice.
0: Mm. And then administer this drug, which draws on fruit flies. Boy, the, are the animal kingdom is helping us in this regard, isn't it? And how are those going so far? What are the results? Can you say?
3: Yes, uh, it's it's gone really well. So, just to clarify, uh, we found something in fruit fly, but that's only the beginning. So, mm. we um, it's kind of, if you will, the raw form of the the chemical and we have to improve it and modify it and make it suitable, less toxic and so on. So that's what we've been trying to do. And we've had some success with that. And it's for that reason that the National Cancer Institute first awarded us a, what's called a phase one um, small business innovative research contract. We completed successfully and now we're on to phase two.
0: Got it. And so things are moving along in this regard. Tintin, you said something fascinating, which is that this research, in some regards, came about because of a conversation with another researcher. You know, there was this this moment of, um, oh, I don't know, almost uh, synchronicity in that regard. And it makes me think about collaboration and whether researchers working in their labs, uh, Dr. Theodore Rescue from uh, the University of Colorado Cancer Center, all over the world are able to talk to each other and how much those interactions might lead to the cure that President Obama called for.
1: Well, collaborations in science are absolutely critical and paramount to making big advances. And, uh, you know, these collaborations, you can think of them at various levels. We think of them at locally and regionally through institutions such as the Cancer Center that brings together fundamental uh, scientists uh, like uh, Tintin. With more clinically oriented uh, scientists, therefore, catalyzing the type of interaction you just heard about, moving things to the, uh, from basic Drosophila research to the clinic. <clears throat> we also have the Drosophila
0: are the fruit flies. The yeah, fruit flies, okay. yes, yes.
1: <laughs> and um, That's fancy term for them. <laughs> and uh, we also have uh, collaborations at the national level through uh, cooperative groups that the NCI has established to do clinical trials and clinical investigation. As well as uh, groups that uh, have been formed spontaneously, such as the Orion Network of Personalized Medicine and uh, Targeted Clinical Trials uh, that we're part of with other cancer centers. So at all say, levels… Say more about that, Orion. So, so how, how does that work? So, yeah, the Orion Network is really the – it's called the the short form of oncology research information exchange. It's a network that was started – uh, about a year and a half ago uh and now is about 12 or so members and what it does essentially is enroll patients um to then uh be candidates potentially for new genetically uh targeted agents so and uh what we're learning now as we were talking earlier is they um we have cancers that are more specifically Uh, sensitive to specific drugs uh, based on their genetic makeup, but nobody really has a lot of um, these patients uh, sometimes. And by coming together, we can identify patients throughout the nation that have these genetic changes Mm. and therefore enroll them together in clinical trials targeting these genetic changes. And that
0: way, it's not just about connecting physicians, but it's about connecting uh, patients, perhaps with rarer forms of cancer, to drugs that may be on the other side of the world. Uh, exactly that's exactly right marty at st mary's in grand junction uh, do, do you see that these kinds of kismet moments that tintin was talking about these kinds of uh, i don't know even accidental collaborations wind up being
2: important i absolutely i see them as being important I, i'd like to say that st mary's is a community hospital as opposed to the university which is an academic institution indeed and so one of the biggest uh, one of the things we need, you should probably you should realize is that Community hospitals see probably 75% of the uh, cancer patients in in the country, so community docs. Um, So there's a huge opportunity to expand research opportunities and collaborations that initiate at academic institutes to community hospitals and include them in the big networks that we're talking about here. Especially given, as you say, how many cancer patients go through there.
0: I'd like to wrap up on the personal. Um, This can't be easy work. I mean, you every day get up and you fight a disease that has claimed lives, many, many lives. How do you do that, Tintin?
3: Um I don't even think of this as work. It's more like a hobby that I'm very, very fortunate to have and have some ability to do uh, well enough to help other people. And so I'm, you'll usually find me in the lab about six days a week and, and in the evenings because I, it's like some, somebody tinkering in their garage. That's, that's my lab and I have a great group of people and it's, it's a, it's really fun to go there. Um, every day, and also collaborate with people in, at the cancer center and also at the animal cancer center in uh, CSU, Fort Collins, is where a lot of my collaboration happens. Too.
0: That's right, because there's actually a lot of interaction between cancers in animals and cancers in people. There's research, I know, at CSU into how cancers in dogs, what that could tell us about cancers in people. Dr. Theater, ask you very briefly, how do you, how do you do this day in and day out?
1: Well, I've wanted to do cancer research ever since I was 10 years old, and I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm living the dream. And uh, to quote Isaac Newton, uh, that said that research is for the privileged, I'm very privileged that I can receive money to pursue my ideas and uh, also um, work at an institution that allows me to bring people together like Tintin, like the researchers at Colorado State, uh, Cancer Flint Animal Cancer Center, in the hope to... Uh, make advances in cancer.
0: Marty, what drives you?
1: Well, I would say that it's um, difficult to work with cancer
2: patients because it's, it's watching people progress is, is a hard thing to see. But um, uh, being able to offer patients, you know, at their home regionally uh, uh, an opportunity to participate or to receive a drug that they may not otherwise be able to get is pretty rewarding. We heard there from Dr. Dan Theodorescu, who directs the University of
0: Colorado Cancer Center in Aurora, Marty Jacobson, who leads research at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction, and Tin Tin Su, who co-founded the Boulder startup Suvica. There is more information about their research at CPRnews.org. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new film follows Ricardo Baca, the Denver Post writer who launched the paper's marijuana website, The Cannabis. Early on in the documentary, Baca surveys a long line of customers who are eager to buy legal pot.
4: It's January 1st,
1: 2014, and this is the first time that recreational pot has been sold legally in the modern world. That's People are minute.
3: psyched. Yeah, yeah, Colorado, baby. Piece of
1: history. <laughs> One minute. One more minute. One more minute. Piece of
0: history. The film is called Rolling Papers. It's at the C Film Center in Denver now and available on demand. Director Mitch Digman joins me. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. So there are any number of angles you could have taken on legalization following, I don't know, a grower or a dispensary owner. Why did you choose to look at this through the lens of Ricardo Baca and his staff at the Denver Post and the Cannabis?
5: Sure. I mean, well, it was a group decision with my fellow producers, Britta Erickson, Katie Shapiro, Daniel Youngie, Allison greenberg Millicent Carl Kister. And we really th- were interested in the idea that journalists are the ones that are helping frame this conversation of legalization. And it provided a nice um, portrait for us to do that. And also, you know, the intersection of declining print and journalism and how they're responding to such a monumental time. Indeed. Um, and so, in a way, all of that allows you to look at the dispensaries and the
0: growers because the journalists have this kind of 360-degree view, I guess.
5: Yeah, totally. I mean, we really piggybacked on the great coverage that they were doing. And Ricardo with the cannabis really focused on both the culture side and the news and policy side. So we were able to kind of pick the stories that we wanted to follow.
0: Describe Ricardo Baca and how he landed this gig.
5: Um Ricardo Baca is one of the most... Um, One of the nicest human beings I know. And um, I just think that, you know, the Post knew that he was very entrepreneurial. He had the history as a journalist, you know, being a music editor for 12 years and the entertainment editor as well. And they knew that he was the right kind of person to approach this. But very even-keeled, mild-mannered, just um, a joy to work with. Yeah, he comes across as really, really kind Mm -hmm. and kind of a little unassuming in
0: in the documentary. He also says that that long experience covering music— naturally meant that he was around a lot of marijuana and a lot of its users as well. Um, He becomes something of a minor celebrity. Uh, People love the idea that a mainstream newspaper hires a marijuana editor. He appears on the Colbert Report, for instance.
4: What will your responsibilities as the pot editor for the Denver Post be? I'm hiring a pot critic from Colorado, Stephen, if you know anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know a few people, but I need them in my editing rooms. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> he also appears on The View, Whoopi Goldberg starts writing for The Cannabis, and uh, at one point in the film, you have a clip of Fox News host Bill O'Reilly saying that The Post hired Baca to, quote, promote pot. As you followed him and his staff, uh, including a crack investigative journalist on the, on the team, to what extent did you see their work as investigation versus promotion of an industry?
5: Yeah, I, I think that they have, you know, a very high standard of ethics and journalistic integrity. I never really saw the coverage as being promotional, but they weren't naive around their freelancers, um, Rye and Brittany and Jake, and their, their passion and love of the plant and how that feeds into the culture side of it. But definitely within the newsroom and the people on staff, you know, they have a very, you know, strict drug policy. And I don't think that, you know, they would be in any position to be promoting the drug. Mm.
0: One major storyline from the first year of legal marijuana uh, and that you document in this documentary, Rolling Papers, was edibles. So some edible marijuana products didn't contain the amount of THC advertised on the package. There were complaints about one company in particular. Baca had the products tested and these chocolate bars contained less than one percent of the promised amount.
1: Is this the most off product that you've tested? So far for THC? Yeah. People are out there consuming
2: these products based on the numbers that are printed on the package. So if I'm a consumer and I eat this entire chocolate bar and it didn't do that much, I might pick up a much higher concentration chocolate bar the next time, eat that whole thing, and have to go to the hospital. This shows the importance of testing. There could be a sort of backlash against the whole legal marijuana movement.
0: This idea that if one product has very low THC and you eat all of it to get high and then you eat one with high THC, you could be endangering your health. You also follow Baca on a reporting trip to Uruguay. Um, Why did you go there?
5: Well, I mean, one of the things that was kind of an elephant in the room the whole time that we were covering this issue was what our federal government was doing with uh, the classification of marijuana and what it might look like if a country were to legalize it. So,
0: Because you've got this tension between the
5: state legalizing yeah, and the federal I mean, government not. The number of times they've covered banking issues or, you know, as we, we touched on CPS, uh, Child Protective Services in the film, the, the federal issues surrounding marijuana are, are largely a challenge to the industry.
0: And why does Uruguay tell a story?
5: Because uh, Uruguay was the first country to legalize. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, what we found out down there was that they definitely – they had a government that was supportive of legalizing it, even though the general population was not in favor of it. We have the exact opposite here in the states. And we really wanted to see what it was like with a government legalizing it you know, nationwide.
0: Was it eye-opening?
5: It was. It was a. It was a beautiful country, and it's you know a work in the progress. And in a lot of regards, Colorado is much further along in in regulating it and legalizing it than the country down there. Hmm.
0: The film sets the creation of the cannabis against, um, as you've said, the decline of the newspaper industry, and you know even the closure of the Rocky Mountain News some years ago. Uh, here is a clip from Denver Post writer John Wenzel.
1: For us to at least try something like this, I I think it's it's just. Almost a survival tactic, in a sense.
0: What did you learn about why The Post started the cannabis? Was it a way to save itself?
5: I I don't think it's a way to save itself. I think it's, you know, that'd be a little bit naive. It's pretty forward-thinking, though. Just on, you know, when I asked Greg Moore a lot about, you know, the newspaper struggling, he said it's been a while since they've viewed themselves strictly as a newspaper so that they knew they had to, you know, devote a lot of attention to online and to different ways to cover um, issues facing our our citizens in Colorado. And uh,
0: Gray Moore is the editor of The Post. Uh, Again, your film is set in early 2014 when recreational marijuana becomes legal in Colorado. And since that time, Baca says the cannabis has become self-supporting. We reached him on the phone.
4: The cannabis is basically standing on its own. It is self-sufficient. Of course, we couldn't have started without The Post, and we don't exist without The Post. But for now, we definitely, our advertising um, supports our entire staff and our freelance budget and everything along with that.
0: As we said, Ricardo Baca hired marijuana critics, and one was Brittany Driver, whom you made reference to. She still writes occasionally for The Cannabis, Uh, and she wrote a pot and parenting column because she had a two-year-old, and she calls Child Protective Services for a story that she's working on to get some perspective on parents and marijuana, and she got really nervous making the call.
3: I mean I seriously almost wet myself talking to CPS because it was it was scary. I, I for one of my articles, I called them to do to just ask like what you know it's legal now, so what should people who smoke marijuana? be wary of. They don't want you smoking. So that's, that's a primary concern, that I don't have someone show up at my door in the middle of the night, like, questioning me with my articles in hand, like, look, right here it says you're smoking, and right here you're smoking.
0: Later in the film, she said some children got taken by Child Protective Services in that first year because their parents were using marijuana. And of course the notion of children and and pot has been so huge since the legalization of recreational cannabis. What did you make of that scene when you were filming it?
5: I mean, I found it um, very open and honest and just an indicator of what a lot of people in Colorado, you know, we don't have a lot of information. I, I myself am a parent as well um, of a young child, and I, I didn't know what the implications would be if someone uses marijuana and, and they have a kid. And so for Brittany to allow us to follow her as she, you know, um, wrote this story that a lot of parents are wondering about as we move forward, I thought was was beautiful. How have audiences reacted to that part of the film? You know, it depends on where we are. I mean, this is still a part of the big culture shift that's happening around marijuana. So we've screened all across North America and, uh, you know, people in Missouri, people in other parts of the country that we've screened still see her as a pretty controversial character and don't quite approve of the parenting style that she is. In in every instance, I've been around her. I mean, her boy is a beautiful young boy and she's a great parent.
0: Are there more stories you want to tell from the marijuana industry?
5: No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, there's, there's it's a it's you know, as they've said a lot, it's going to take 10 years for us to really have the data to to show whether this experiment is working or not. And I just – I don't have 10 years to be working on this film. So um, I think that we covered it as best as we could in that year one and tried to have a lot of fun with the film. But thank goodness the cannabis and, and the Denver Post is there covering the things that – like pesticides and, and the stories that are still uh, pressing. I didn't know that. So there's a, the thought that it will take a decade to get what kind of data? I mean all of it. Teen use um, – kid use, crime, uh, the medical impacts. I mean, this, this drug's been illegal for 70 years or whatever it's been. And I think that a lot of the, the information that, you know, both proponents and critics want, the data just isn't there. You know, there's a scene where they had a where we had a forum where we kind of poke a little fun at that because that's basically what they're saying is that we don't really know a lot about this substance. So I think as citizens, we have to be a little bit patient to figure out exactly what all this is going to mean.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That is Mitch Dickman. He directed Rolling Papers, the documentary that you can see now on demand or at the C Film Center in Denver. By the way, when we caught up with Ricardo Baca, we asked him what the cannabis will focus on in 2016, and he says big business.
4: What happens when we have multiple pot shop chains throughout the state of Colorado that have more than 12 shops, um, and, and some of those investors are now absolutely present in other states. What happens on the commercial side of this when these companies truly start expanding and, and end up becoming a national marijuana corporation?
0: That is Ricardo Baca of The Cannabis and who also stars in Rolling Papers, the documentary. Your feedback after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ahead of Super Tuesday, we've been reporting on Colorado's caucus system. And many of you have written in to say you're not a fan of the caucuses. Let's hear your responses now in loud and clear. Richard Johnston says we are parents of a six-year-old. One of us will have to leave the caucus at some point. That disenfranchises half of our household. They might have been good for a time when voters didn't know what candidates stood for and could learn about them. But in today's information age, they don't make sense. Bonnie Carney of Fort Collins writes, Horrible process. I have spent too much of my afternoon trying to figure out where I have to go to caucus. I support changing the process so more citizens can participate. Why should a small group of activists decide whom we get to vote for? And Amy Ingram-McCosh made this comment on our Facebook page, CPR News. A caucus has no place in this level of government. We aren't picking a president of the Student Council. We need to make sure every vote is counted. Caucuses leave a lot of room for human error. Some feedback now on our coverage of opioid abuse. We told you about a course for health care providers on when it's appropriate to prescribe painkillers and when to say no to a potential addict. Listener Sean Morris of Centennial reached out. She says she requires pain medication for a back injury and for fibromyalgia. And she's frustrated that many stories about opioid abuse are, quote, one-sided and simplistic. She thinks they leave out the perspective of patients who legitimately need opioids.
2: The problem is, with each story that the public hears about this, they are becoming more and more fearful and Doctors are becoming more and more fearful, and there is a backlash that it's harder for the doctors to prescribe to the people who actually need the medication.
0: Well, Sean, we reached back out to our guest, Dr. Elizabeth Grace, and here's her response. I agree that there are patients who may legitimately benefit from opioid pain medications, and refusal to write prescriptions altogether is not an appropriate or helpful response. However, research indicates that close to 20% of those using opioid pain relievers for non-medical use in the past year obtained them through prescriptions from their physicians. She goes on to say about the course she teaches, When physicians feel skilled, it should result in enhanced access for those who legitimately need these medications and are using them as prescribed, and in keeping them out of the hands of those who are using the drugs for non-medical purposes. My most recent interview with Governor John Hickenlooper drew criticism from Diana Shivers of Littleton, particularly when we talked about road funding. Quoting her here, I've seen many transportation projects through the years in Colorado, and I feel like many are not solving problems, just creating temporary solutions for another project shortly down the road. A key place I think Ryan and many others have missed is whether the repairs and expansions that we have all invested in are for the long term and truly addressing our issues. Finally, an update on a bill in the state legislature that we've been following. Some call it right to die, others doctor-assisted suicide. In any case, the legislation will not move forward. It would have allowed people who are terminally ill to end their lives with drugs prescribed by doctors. In a surprise move, proponents withdrew the measure. We reached the sponsor for comment, State Representative Lois Court. She says other lawmakers had planned to introduce amendments that would have altered the intention of the bill. Court and her allies added that they will fight for the measure in the long run. Keep your feedback coming. You can head to our website, cprnews.org, and click Contact at the top of the page. Email us, news at cpr.org. That includes with your story ideas. And you can follow us uh, through social media, at Colorado Matters on Twitter and CPR News on Facebook. For three decades, an unusual store called Architectural Salvage has been a Denver institution, attracting people with old homes who want to replace a fixture with something authentic. Well today the store closes its doors, and it has a lot of doors. A customer checks out a pair of pocket doors, seven feet tall, made of wood with brass wheels at the top. So these are 40% 40 off, off, yeah? Nearby are cases of doorknobs, hinges, spindles. There are windows hanging from the ceiling, and there's a kind of creepy wicker baby carriage that's more than a century old. It is not the only oddity.
6: Who do you think is going to buy the urinal?
1: We've had several people look at it.
0: (laughs) Co-owners Roger Johnson and Betsy Werhane are moving to Tucson to retire. They couldn't find a buyer for the store, so everything was marked down.
2: These shelves were just chuck full, and now they're empty, almost empty, which is good.
0: The merchandise at architectural salvage is almost all from the 1880s through the 1930s, what the couple thinks of as the era of Denver when all the old homes were built.
1: Everything was, you know, pretty much built by craftsmen up through about the 1920s. And then uh, in the 20s and 30s, they started to go a little bit Art Deco and then uh, everything started being mass produced after World War II. And a lot of the the quality and the And the detail that had been in the Victorian area in earlier periods was pretty much gone.
2: Everybody had money after the war. Everybody painted their woodwork. Everybody carpeted their floors. And everybody remodeled their bathrooms and kitchens.
1: They did that to all the old houses. So, yeah, there was no great appreciation of, of what people had. But
0: Denverites did start to see the charm of their old homes, which is what kept this place in business for so long. After the couple closes the store tonight, they'll open one last time, March 12th, for an auction. They hope to sell off most of what's left. All those doors, a small organ, and, if the price is right, a pair of hand-carved wooden columns that Wurhain says came from Guatemala. And
2: those, if they don't sell in the auction, for a good price I'm keeping. That's probably going to be the only thing that has a reserve on it.
0: And whatever's left of the metal hardware...
2: We're taking it because we're going to sell it on eBay in our retirement. We have to have something to do. Oh, I'll get it. Oh. I need to send it to my contractor. Okay, see if he can make things work.
0: You can see photos of architectural salvage and the couple behind it at cprnews.org. Two young entrepreneurs in Fort Collins are also salvaging vintage items, in their case, antique pocket watches. And by using 3D printing and some new materials, they're turning last century's technology into something thoroughly modern. Kurt Nickish from WBUR has the story. When they were undergrads
4: at Penn State, R.T. Custer and Tyler Wolf had a business idea, and they pitched it at entrepreneurship competitions – Custer remembers all the other students were coming up with
6: smartphone apps and web products. And when I walk in and pitch my physical product, all of the investors and everybody there immediately tunes out because, you know, who's this guy and what is this physical product that's 3D printed that he's putting in front of me? That was so frustrating. But like good entrepreneurs, Custer and Wolf did
4: not stop at frustrated. Wolf says they forged ahead at the 3D
6: printing lab on campus. We use a stainless steel 3D printed piece that's then infiltrated with bronze. So we get this incredibly unique look of the molten bronze actually coming out of the pores of the stainless steel, which is something that's impossible to achieve using traditional manufacturing methods. That modern
4: technology
6: with the Bronze Age look, they use that to make cases for wristwatches. We had no idea that nobody makes a 100% American-made watch. So as we were looking for a timepiece to use in our watch we were forced to look vintage. And they do that by salvaging pocket watches made decades ago in Waltham. We started on eBay just buying watches. We bought probably 20 to 50 watches before we ever launched our company on Kickstarter. I sat in RT's basement and I took apart (laughs) a watch every day and tried to put it back together to find out how it works and what makes one watch better than another. It's a tiny little engine that was built over 100 years ago And we cleaned it, oiled it, and wound it, and it worked. We don't make things like that here anymore, and and we need to.
4: Today, Wolf and Custer revived those Waltham pocket watches for daily use as wristwatches on an old farm in Fort Collins, Colorado. Outside their workshop, a sign says the name, Vordic Watch Company. Inside, ball hammers and leather punchers hang next to a 3D printer and a laser engraver.
6: And then here we have our, our dial repository. Here.
4: Employee Sorry. Jimmy Looper sifts through a bag of vintage watch faces. <laughs> when we need uh, a dial, if we have another one, we can rummage through here and see if we can find anything. One dial from nineteen oh eight is crisp white enamel, Arabic numerals in sharp black with a recessed circle for the second hand. Another from nineteen thirty six features Roman numerals under a golden patina of light metal scratches. Looper says both dials were made on the banks of the Charles. Now the first
6: thing I think of is, you know, what's the history of the watch? Who wore this? Who used it? You know, what has it been doing the last fifty years? Has it been sitting in a drawer or, or whatnot? And yeah, and I definitely wonder, you know, who who put this together, and was it just a job, or was it uh, was it their passion?
4: I like to hope the latter. That's because when Looper flips the watch over, the metal pieces are engraved in cursive with a serial number, the words American Waltham Watch Company, and 17 jewels. The steel springs inside pivot on small pieces of ruby. Bigger plates are burnished with crosshatching or waves, patterns that Looper says were never visible while these mechanisms were tucked inside their metal
6: cases. And I just absolutely love that it's a, a functional piece, but they said... Well, why not make it beautiful? There's no reason not to, and, and so uh, I, I just
4: I think that they're gorgeous. A scientifically built beauty that Vortic Watch Company wants to show off. Looper sandwiches the century-old timepiece between two pieces of gorilla glass, the same glass that's on the iPhone. It's very, uh, very durable, scratch-resistant
6: glass. Pretty thick, too.
4: With a vise, he lodges the watch and glass inside the 3D-printed steel housing and then adds thick leather straps. He winds it up to test the timing, flipping it over to watch the gears clicking away through the glass. Last year, Bordic sold 250 of these fairly big and bold wristwatches. The customers, who shell out more than $2,000 each, tend to be watch fanatics, tech workers with disposable income, and baby boomers. Steve Perlman bought two of the wristwatches.
0: Wow, that's a fascinating watch. It really looks very old.
4: Perlman says he gets that reaction from many of his customers. He's a former archaeology professor who runs an inn on Martha's Vineyard.
0: Some people have sort of a fascination with something that is old and how it survived that long. And then to bring it to the
2: modern world to a time that they can associate with, I think is an interesting transference for them.
6: So this isn't the end of the line for us. Co-founder Tyler Wolf says
4: Vortic Watch Company plans to make 500 of these watches this year and 1,000 more next year. But eventually, he says the goal is to transition from custom to batch manufacturing, making all the hundreds of pieces for a watch
6: here in the United States. Because we want to spread our ideas and our, our passion to more than just the people that can buy a $2,000
4: watch. That's a daunting business challenge in a market dominated by Swiss manufacturers. But at 23 and 25 years old, Tyler Wolf and R.T. Custer have got time. I'm Kurt Nickish.
5: Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner.